Thank you for joining us on our Living Word Christian Center podcast. You're about to listen to one of our guest speakers. Open up your hearts and get ready to receive a word from the Lord. privilege and blessing it is here to be here tonight with you again. I'm going to ask my wife if she would come up, come up and share a word she wasn't expecting. And here's Mama Sita. Howdy. Here we are. I just want to thank our, our father of the house, Pastor Reuben, for inviting us out here. Can we just acknowledge him? Because of him, you're all here. You know that, right? And he's a good man, and we just are so blessed that we can call him our pastor, and he's just doing a good work. And all of you as well, I'm thankful for all of the pastors that have come out tonight to be a part of this. What do you think of the... What do you think? (laughs) So thank you all for welcoming us here tonight. Bless you. It really is good to see friends and friendly faces. Amen. It's just wonderful what God's doing for all of us. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to get right into it tonight. And tonight I'm going to do a little bit more teaching, preaching, but I want you to just pay attention because the Lord's going to speak to some lives tonight. Are you ready? I want to talk, first of all, about three generations. Just talk about that for a moment. I'm going to come out of Proverbs, the 24th chapter, the third and fourth verse. And we're just going to dig right in. It says, through wisdom, a house uh, is a house built. And by understanding, it is established. And by knowledge, shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So he says, the first generation comes out of wisdom or out of revelation. Something revealed to the first generation that they had never seen before. They did, it wasn't something they'd experienced. And so the first generation receives God and wisdom is imparted. And they say because that wisdom happens, they start to build. That's what they start to do. The second generation, one of two things happens. Either there's a progression of that revelation or there's a digression. It goes the other way. So you either go forward or backward with that revelation. If it goes forward, it moves from revelation to righteousness. Something is established. It's righteousness, right standing. So what was revealed is now lived out in the second generation in righteousness. Now, if it does not move forward, but if it goes backwards, it won't move to righteousness. It will move to religion, to religion. Religion, when I say that, for those that might be newer in here, is just man's efforts to reach God, his, his way of doing things. Not God's way, his way. His habits, his, his traditions, his ideas. And so what happens in religion, you sidestep Jesus. You really don't need him because you're going to make it on your own. And so religion is its own practices, its own way. We really don't need Christ to die for us in religion. How many of you know religion is not of God? Okay, so it makes, when you move into religion, it makes room for the enemy to come in and begin to steal your godly relationship from God. It begins to steal it. It moves you out of focus of what God's doing, and all of a sudden you begin to focus on systems and ideas. Although those aren't evil things, how many of you know it's more about what God's doing in your life than the system or the idea you have? Amen. 
It's, uh, so, so this is what religion does. So either you're in that, that second, you get a re- revelation, the first generation. Either you move in that and you start to establish it and start to stand right in righteousness. Or you move the other way and you start to go backwards and you fall into religion and your plans, your design, your systems. Okay, the third generation. Now let's talk about the third generation. If the second generation moved forward, if they adhered to what God was doing and they they moved into righteousness, they will then move into relationship. They'll move into relationship with God. That's what will happen to that third generation. If they did not move forward, they will move from religion into rebellion. Into rebellion. That's where they'll end up. So here's what the Bible says in Exodus 34, verse 7. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. So uh, there, there's sin. Sin means to miss the mark. You'll, you'll find throughout scripture it says sin, uh, transgressions, and iniquity. They always put them together. They're always together. So they're actually three different things. And the iniquity means a a, like a wind is blowing against a tree, it's causing the tree to bend a certain way. And iniquity is you have a bend in your life a certain way. So if your parents were, let's say, alcoholics, you have a tendency to become the same thing. If there was violence in your life, you be, have a tendency. That iniquity, that tendency that's in your generations will follow you. So if your, if your great-grandfather had a revelation... And the family followed that, your family's going to move into relationship. If they did not follow that, your family's going to move into rebellion, and you're going to be caught right in the middle of it. It wasn't that you did it, it's simply that you're part of that iniquity. The Bible says it'll follow you into your generation. So, so here's what happens. The first generation, they, are, they receive a, a word from God, something that they uh, powerful. They learn about Jesus. Let's just use that for an example. And they, they hear about what God can do for their life. And so they move into re- righteousness, they move into revelation, and they will become worshipers. Everybody say worshipers. If they do not move into righteousness and they go the other way, instead of uh, that, they will become workers. They'll become workers, okay? And so, so it, it, it's something that happens inside of their lives, okay? They, they're, they're, they, they've received this revelation. They've, they're moving into God. They're worshiping and they're, they're working for God. They're building God's kingdom. They're doing something for God. They're excited about what God has for them. And so they take what the first generation knew In other words, granddad gave them a revelation, and now they begin to take action, and they begin to build with that. They begin to do something with that. That's the second generation. If that does not happen, then what they will do is they'll go the other direction, and they'll become, instead of a worker, they'll become a watcher. They just watch. Okay? Instead of, that's all they do. So they go to church, and they just watch. Oh, hear me now. I'm talking to you today. These are the people that come, and without realizing what they're doing, it might be you today, I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell you what God's saying to you, amen. I'm, I hope you get convicted, amen. I'm trying to be nice here, but what you do is you come and you watch people pray. You watch people worship. You watch people lift their hands. You don't really do it. You do it a little bit because you want to be part, but, but you don't really praise God. You don't abandon yourself and worship to God at church. You, you, you're still worried about how you look and your appearance. And so, so what happens is you start to get riddled with excuses. 
You're a watcher. You don't really want to get involved. You don't want to have action. You don't want to really build. You want to be a part of somebody that is, but you don't want to do it. You're a watcher, okay? And so you, you, you're into routines. You're into the way you do things. You always have an excuse why you can't be at the outreach, why you can't be at prayer, why you can't worship. You're a watcher. Okay, and that's what happens to that second generation. Now, a lot of that's because the fear of the Lord did not come through the generations right, and so you are there without that fear of the Lord. So let's move a little bit further. So if the first generation receives a revelation, they become worshipers, and they are now building the kingdom of God. Uh, it, it's, it's a powerful thing. And if they do all of that, they will come into a genuine encounter and a relationship with Jesus Christ. So, so that's what happens to this side. They begin to, to come into something powerful and beautiful, and it passes down, the Bible says, a thousand generations. The curse only goes three and four, but the blessing goes a thousand. Amen. And so if, if you get on this side and you're a worshiper and you enter in and you're a worker and you're believing God, something beautiful begins to happen. But if you go to this side, you're going to fall into religion. You're, you're going to be a watcher. And what will happen to you in time, the generations, if not to you, at least to your children, you're going to find out your kids are rebels. They're in rebellion all the time. There's a rebellion that's in them. And the Bible teaches us that that rebellion is the sin and the spirit of witchcraft. 1 Samuel 15, 23, for rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. And it starts to work in that family. It's an iniquity. It's there. It starts to generate itself in about the third generation. So my wife and I were talking about something the other day, and, and her family chose to not really move into the relationship with God. They moved into religion. And so they went to church every Sunday, like most Sundays, let's put it that way. They sang the hymns. They followed the liturgy of their, their denomination. They did exactly what they were supposed to do, but they had no real relationship with Christ. They got baptized because you had to be baptized if you want to go to heaven in that religion. And so they were doing all of the things, the systems, the, the traditions, they were doing all of that. So that they were, they were not really into it, they were into religion, okay? So then what happens, because now they're just watchers, they, 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 something was lost in there, they lost their, their belief. When you're, when you're in just a watcher, you lose the dynamic, the action, the life, you lose it. And you're in church and you're just kind of doing the motion here and there. And, and that's what happened to her family. They just got caught in the staleness of religion, of just going to church. And so by the time it reached the third generation, which would be my wife and her sister and some of those, we was, one, of the, one of that generation was talking. And we noticed that they had a tattoo. That tattoo was on their foot. And so they start to tell us, oh yeah, this tattoo is a Wiccan symbol. If you don't know what Wiccan is, that's witchcraft. It's a Wiccan symbol. And, and then they proclaimed, there's a lot of good things in witchcraft too. Now that's the third generation. Because they've moved to religion, now they're moving into witchcraft. They think it's funny. They think it's silly. They like the little emblem. They just, no problem. It's a Wiccan symbol. But what they don't realize is now we look at their children and they're full-on rebellious. So are you following what I'm saying? It moves down the generations. Please try to understand this. When a witch moves into the room or into the atmosphere, everything starts to get confused. There's confusion. Witches always bring confusion. There's a disruption of order. 
There's a, a disruption of the continuity and the unity of that church. So when you bring a witch in, trust me, I've been around a lot of witchcraft in my life, just people. It just seems that God has done that with my life. And when they come into the room, you can feel things start to get weird. The atmosphere changes. They, they're always questioning. There's that rebellion. It's in them. They're always questioning. They're always, well, why do we do this? Why do we? It's just something that starts to happen. It's just a funny feeling. There's a disruption of what we're doing in the house of God. We're no longer working and building and worshiping. We're trying to deal with you and all your problems because you're a rebel. I'm not, hey, listen, I'm, I'm just trying to, if it's you, just say amen and you can get saved tonight. Don't you? I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to help you see it. I want you to see it. That really does happen to us. You find yourself sitting in church and you really aren't participating. You're just kind of half in and half out. You're watching. And I'm telling you, you're going to see your kids move into rebellion. So I'm trying to help you see something here. And so, so let me give you an example of our culture today. And if this makes you uncomfortable, it's okay. <laughs> I want to talk about transgendered people for a moment. Simply stated, there is no such thing as transgendered. There's not. If we bury you in 15 years from now, when we dig you up, you're going to be with either XX or XY. There ain't nothing else. You're either going to be male or female. That's the way it is. I'm sorry. That's what you are. Now, you can come along and chop things off. <laughs> Do other stuff. Amen. But the notion that you can be other than the biology that God gave you, I want to say something to you. That's a cultural construct that's intended to be an assault against God. It is. A person that goes into complete transgenderism is literally committing identity suicide. It, it, there's, it's a suicide. It's what it really is. It's literally the end of a person's true identity and existence in the way that God made them. So it's a rebellion against God. It's saying to God, I don't accept the way you made me. That's not how I feel. But again, I remind you, as I said last night, they'll say to me, I was born this way. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. Everybody feels weird stuff from time to time. Okay, but I'm trying to help you see something. Did you know the statistics of a person that becomes transgendered is like 19 to 21% chance that they're going to commit real suicide? Okay, it's, it's really high. What they've done is they've cut themselves off from reality. They're no longer trying to be who God made them to be. It's a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against their parents. It's a rebellion against everybody else saying they can be whatever they want to be. I don't know if you've heard all this stuff or not, but you know, when you read in the Bible, when you read about demons, it's never an I. It's always a we or a they. It's always that. It's always numerous. And so that's why this new generation doesn't want to be called male or female. They want to be called we or they. It's a demon spirit. I'm trying to help you see something. The most extreme isolation a person can get from reality is to go that way. You cannot get more extreme than saying, I'm not who I am. That's not who I am. So if you're no longer who you are, then you're in a fantasy world of somewhere, and that's called witchcraft. 
And that's what's happening to them. It's a suicide of their identity. They're bound in witchcraft. And, and you know, I read recently that there was a, a doctor in Australia and these parents that took a five-year-old kid in there and did a sex change on a five-year-old kid. First of all, the parents ought to be put in prison. This is my opinion. You don't have to accept it. And second of all, I'd like to know who that doctor is. We ought to slap the fat out of his face. Who could do such a hideous thing to a five-year-old child? This is a war on God. It's amen. I'm not going to let God tell me who I am. I'm not going to be the way God made me. God's not going to define me. I'll be who I want to be. If I want to raise my hands, I'll raise my hand. If I want to worship, I'll... It's a war against God. The Bible says in Romans, the first chapter, if you read that, that eventually you'll end up with a reprobate mind. That's what starts to happen. So I'm talking about you either go this way and you're a worshiper and a builder and a worker in the kingdom of God, or you go this way. And what most, most Christians are at today, they're watchers at best. They don't really want to do anything. They don't want to be a part of anything. Not really. They're, they want to act like they are, but they're not really. And then we wonder why our kids are having problems and why there's rebellion in our homes. We can't figure it out. And because it's the beginning of a spiritual witchcraft that's working in their lives. Now listen, there's a fine line between confronting the error of that and lovingly affirming somebody that God loves them and wants them to be, have a purpose in their life as he designed their lives to be. Okay, so, so when a person goes that far, let me just kind of backstep for a moment here. That person is scarred for life. That person is broken, that person is lost, and they need to be addressed in love. Amen. Because they're honestly broken down. They have lost themselves. Witchcraft has, the iniquity of their lives has caught them. They, they, listen, I'm not blaming everything, but somewhere along the line, iniquity got them. And it turned into a rebellion, and they're, 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 they're living that out. And so somewhere along the line, we need to tell these people, listen to me, you are God's masterpiece. God never made anybody like you. You are a masterpiece. God loves you. You're exactly the way God wants you to be. And I want you to snap out of it. Amen. Somebody talk to me tonight. So when you find people struggling like that, they have big holes in their heart and their lives. They lack self-worth. They lack dignity. They lack significance. And we as the people of God need to have a, a love and a concern for them like the Father God would have for them. Amen. But I'm talking about a spirit of witchcraft. It gets loosed in a generation. It gets loosed in a family. And it, it, it works its way down. And in a little while, you have all these weird ideas that we're seeing now in our culture. It, it's it's the, a few generations from when, the, like even the Foursquare, this church is a part of the Foursquare denomination. It started out with somebody had a revelation. Something powerful happened. They built these buildings. They, they went forward. They did something. Okay, but, but now we're down to our culture and our, our land today is nobody knows who they are anymore. It's moved into rebellion. Are you with me so far? And so it's, it's a very important that we understand this because either we're going to move into a great relationship with God or we're going to move into a witchcraft with hopelessness and a loss in our lives. We see this happening in a story that I want to share with you tonight of Samuel. Samuel has come to the house of Jesse, who has some sons, and he's going to anoint one of these sons to be the king of Israel in Saul's place. King Saul was there and he was not living for God correctly. In fact, he was dealing with a lady called the Witch of Ondor. Okay, and so he was caught up in rebellion, caught up in witchcraft, and God's going to replace him. And he's going to replace him with King David. 
okay? But let me give you a little background of the witchcraft that's working in this family. I want you to see this. It's a rather lengthy text. I think we'll be able to follow on the screen here, but if not, it's 1 Samuel 16. I'm going to read all the first 13 verses. It says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you, or a, a bull, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to, you shall do. You shall anoint for me one of the boys that I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. This is a prophet, man. He called him out. And they said to this prophet, do you come peaceably? Okay. They're used to prophets calling fire down. Okay. And so he said, no, I've come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was the firstborn son. So he thought this is surely the one. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see it as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, this is the second one, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. I want you to notice that word Shammah. Everybody say Shammah. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus, Jesse made seven. Now, everybody say seven. seven. That's going to be on your test in a few minutes. Just telling you what's going to be on your test. Seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, ah, there remains yet the youngest. There he is out there keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him. Watch these words, for we will not sit down till he comes here. We're not going to sit down until he gets here. So he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy. That means red complexion, like freckles and red hair kind of look, okay? With bright eyes, blue eyes. Everybody say blue eyes. And he was good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Let me read one more text, and then I'm gonna, I'll dig this apart. Isaiah 10, 27. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be removed from his shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of what? The anointing. Everybody say the anointing. So the anointing changes everything. The anointing makes the natural supernatural. And it makes the nominal phenomenal. The anointing does something dynamic, okay? So in our text, Samuel has gone to the house, or to the, to, to the sacrifice, and all of Jesse's sons are there except for David, okay? And so the Bible says that he brings his six sons before Samuel, and he brought Shammah. Shammah. Now I want you to hear this. Shammah was not a son. He was some local kid. 
It was somebody playing with his boys. It was just a friend of the family. Let me show you what I'm talking about. First Chronicles 2, verses 13 through 15. And I want you just to look real close there. It says, Jesse begot Eliab, that's his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shimea the third, Nathaniel the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozium the sixth, and David the seventh. Do you see Shama in that group? Huh? He ain't in that group. But remember earlier, he brought Shama up there and God said, neither is this the one. Huh? David was out in the pasture tending the sheep. And the prophet has to say, hey, dude, God told me it's one of your sons. There's all your sons here. And he said, ah, that, that silly one's out there singing songs or something. Huh? This guy, Jesse, knows that one of his sons is going to become the king of Israel. And he still won't bring his son out. He leaves David out there in the field. Now, wait a minute. Think about that for a minute. Now, let's go to another thing. This is going to be on your test. So I want you to watch it. Let's look at this next scripture. Put it up there if you got it. There. Now, their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. Who are they? Zeruiah and Abigail. That was his sisters. Okay, are you with me so far? I need you to understand this family. So let's go back to that other scripture again. But, but there we go. There's the seven sons. You see all the seven sons. Names in the Bible, just leave that up there for a few minutes, carry a meaning. And all of these seven sons got rejected by God before God anointed David. Okay, there's something going on in this family that's weird. That's what I'm trying to show you. There's an iniquity that's working in this family somehow. So Eliab means... His name means, my God is my father. So this is a, a profession of religion. This guy is a religious guy, and he professes God, but he has no real quality of godliness in his life. He's not really doing anything to catch God's attention. He's just out there faking it. He's just kind of there at church. You know, he's, just a, he's a watcher. And God said, I reject that guy. Abinadab means, my father is noble. And I want to say this to you. You don't make it into heaven because of who your daddy or your mama was. You're not going to get there. You, got, you, you, you ought to have a proud heritage. You can be happy for your family and be proud of them. But you can't ride in on your daddy's anointing. And God says, I reject this. You don't get to ride in on somebody else's anointing. Ooh, I'm preaching good right now. Shimei, oh, oh, yeah, Shimei means astonishment. Just because something's astonishing does not mean it's anointed. I've seen a lot of witches do some weird stuff, but it don't mean it's anointed. Not from heaven anyway. Amen. Medicine men out on the reservation can do some pretty astonishing things. And I, if you don't believe me, come with us and I'll show you. They can turn into animals. They call them skinwalkers. Ask any Navajo, they'll explain it to you. Okay, so witches and mediums and all these people does not mean it's a heavenly anointing. There's something going on, but it's not a God anointing. And so God said, I reject that. Nathaniel means given of God. Just because you're gifted does not mean you're anointed. Beyonce's gifted. And I'll just leave it right there for those of you that love her. For the older generation, Frank Sinatra was gifted. <laughs> Somebody go, who's that? Red eye means to rule or to be in charge. You can be in charge of something. You can have the, 
the title, but it doesn't mean you have the anointing. El Pastor might be El Diablo. Huh? Titles don't mean nothing about anointing. Just because you're calling you El Pastor doesn't mean you got nothing. Amen. God says, I reject that. Ozium means to be strong. Well, strength comes in a lot of ways. You can have strong finances. You can have strong political stance. You can have all kinds of things. But I want to say something. Strength does not mean you're anointed. It doesn't mean it. So God says, I reject that. And finally, they bring David, which means my beloved. And Jesse was not going to present him to the prophet to be anointed. He was hiding him in the field. Why would Jesse bring his six sons up there, get rejected, and even put the neighborhood kid up there? Come here, Jose. <laughs> Come here, you little vato. Get up there, see if he'll go for you. He's going to let this kid do it, man. This guy could have got to be king. Jesse didn't care. Why would he try to do that? Listen, he, he ran the religious by the prophet. He ran the noble, the astonishing, the gifted, the ruler, and the strong. And God said, I don't receive any of that. I'm not interested in anointing that. I'm sorry. Then he brings up this stupid little kid. Amen. And the prophet said, now nah, he ain't the one. Why not David? Why is he so ashamed of David? Why is he afraid of David? Why not bring your own son up there and let God touch him? Pop quiz. This is your first test. How many of you can remember whose David's sisters were? Zeruiah and Abigail. Remember that? Now let's look at this next scripture. Let's go to this next scripture. Here we go. It says, And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zuriah. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop for a minute. Abigail is who? It's David's sister. But she's the daughter of who? Nahash. Hmm? You're not, you haven't caught it yet. David was Jesse's boy. Zuriah and Abigail were David's sisters, but they were not Jesse's daughters. Huh? They all have the same mama, or they couldn't be brothers and sisters, but they got different daddies. Huh? So I looked up Nahash. Oh, Nahash, you know what that means? Shining serpent or shining snake. He was a witch doctor. He was full of witchcraft. And the reason Jesse didn't want David to be selected was because he did not want Nahash, Mr. Snake, to be reminded that Jesse had been fooling around with Mrs. Snake. Oh, you're going to catch on in a minute. Yeah, Jesse is a player. He was a Pentecostal playboy. And Jesse said, I don't know what's going on around here, but I don't want Mr. Voodoo messing with me. Mr. Voodoo got a snake in him. Jesse had enough sense to know there was witchcraft. There was something ugly there. And he'd been in bed with Mrs. Snake. And he didn't want the whole nation to find out about all this. So he was going to hide David. He wasn't going to be reminded of David. Now listen, David was a Jew. 
Okay? I'm not trying to be racial here. Not a little bit. <laughs> but Jews have black hair, dark-haired people, okay? And they, they are a darker skin color. But David, if you remember, was redheaded and had blue eyes, just like his mama. Another man's wife from another nation. Amen. Brothers busted. <laughs> I'm trying to help you see. See, now the snake's in the family. Now there's witchcraft in the family. Now there's an iniquity working in that family. And now daddy's trying to hide it. David later writes in Psalms 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And so, and in my sin, my mother, or in sin, my mother conceived me. It's not a sin if mom and dad are married. I'm trying to show you something. Bible's got a lot of, they ought to let me, instead of Stephen King, they ought to let me make some movies. I'm telling you, man, I could make some movies that blow you away, boy. I get the book of Revelation, I have frogs coming out of the Euphrates. <laughs> Jesse was not going to let David get anointed because he had a past sin. Amen. Amen. And I want to say to you, there might be some of you in this church tonight that believe you can't be anointed because there's a past sin in your life. Amen. There might be something going on in your past that is now haunting your present and it's coming after you and it's a witchcraft and it's working. But pastor, you don't know what I used to be. You don't know what I used to do. You don't know all this about me. I know this. I know this. God says, you're the one I want. You hear what? God said, that's the one. I, I accept that. God is not afraid of those things. Listen to me carefully. God loves you. No matter how snakish your past lineage might be, God's anointing can break every yoke. It can break every yoke. I don't know what your mama and your daddy did. I don't know what's going down in your life. I don't know what iniquity you're dealing with. But I want to tell you, I have a God that will break every yoke. There's an anointing that can set us free. And here's what, here's what Samuel said. Samuel was a prophet. He's In the Old Testament, the, the Holy Spirit would only rest usually on one person at a time. It was usually the prophet. So he's a representative of the Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit says. We reject all of those guys and we're not going to sit down till David gets, he gets here. We're going to stand here. So I want you to understand. In other words, he's saying we cannot rest until the anointing gets in its right place. Mm -hmm. I don't care where he's coming from. I don't care what pasture he's in. I don't care what he smells like. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care what all this stuff is. I don't care about none of that snaky stuff. All I know is we're not sitting down till that anointing gets on the right guy at the right place. Huh? And I want to say to you today, God's not sitting down until you get the anointing you're supposed to have and you're in the place that God has you to be. Somebody shout amen. Now, as soon as David gets that anointing, you would think that his dad would be, whoo, thank God we got a king in our family. But that's not what happened. His dad's still trying to mess with it. And Jesse says, son, go on back out there to the sheep. Now, wait a minute. He just got anointed to be king. And they send him back to the sheep. That's a story, though. That's a type. God did that for you and I to learn a lesson. 
He was not sent to be a politician right away. He wasn't sent to be a king right away. Not at this time. He was sent back to the sheepfold. No one needs the anointing like the sheep. <laughs> the mantle of protection needs to rest on God's sheepfold before it rests on a nation. Uh -huh. The sheepfold is our training ground. You can't move into your destiny. You'll never be what God wants you to be until you learn how to protect God's sheep. Till you learn how to mantle God's sheep. Till you care for God's sheep. And so God sent him back to the sheep to learn how to be a king. And you'll learn how to be anointed and move in the gift that God has for you right here in the sheep pen. <laughs> Some of you are a little more like goats, man. He'd be bunting heads with everybody. But, <laughs> but this, amen, somebody. I'm trying to teach you something here. This is what happened. So what does David do while he's protecting those sheep? The Bible says that he had to fight off a lion. I don't know if you've ever seen a lion or not up close. I was walking in Mexico City, me and a guy named Al Pimentel. We were walking down the street, and there's a, a, a fence, just a just a like the fences you have out front out there. Just like that. There's a little black fence. And, the, and we're walking along, and all of a sudden, I look up. I felt something. I look up, and there's a full-grown male lion just walking right beside me. Brother Ray was on the other side of the street like, <laughs> translated to that side. I left Al to be meat. Hey, man, I'm out of here. I'm very good at that. I'm very good at that, Edgy. I get out, man. Male lions are bad. They're big. They're huge. It's unbelievable. And that, so he went out and fought a lion, the Bible says, and he fought a, 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 a bear, and he killed him before he ever became king. He was anointed, but he hadn't taken the position yet. Let me read it to you, 1 Samuel 17. David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and I delivered the lamb out of its mouth. And when it rose against, uh, up against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck it again and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. That's one Brad disciple right there. That brother is who you want for your armor bear. <laughs> that brother's bad right there. So I'm trying to say something to you. Being in leadership is about protecting and nurturing God's sheep. No matter what ministry you're leading in, whether it's worship or children, whatever it is, number one priority is the sheep. The lion represents a devouring spirit. All through the Bible, it's a, it, watch out for the devouring lion. He's coming. It represents something that devours your joy. It devours your hope. It devours victory. So when you find people in the church, in the sheepfold, that they've, their, their joy has been ate, that their victory has been gone, that they've lost hope, your job is to smite that spirit, not the person, not the person. You smite the spirit in prayer, and you smite it till it rises up. You make it rise up and let go of the prey it's got. You have to come and engage in prayer and smack that demon, amen, that witchcraft. you got to smack it until it lets go, and then you smack it and kill it. That's what it says. The bear, the bear represents a, a hibernating, cycling spirit. So, so this is a person who they do really good for three months, and then they go on a binge. Then three months in a binge, that's a bear. That's a bear spirit. It's hibernates, comes back out hibernates, comes back out. It cycles. It's always got this cycle. Demons always have a cycle. 
They got a feeding pattern. Amen. And so David said, I've learned how to find the wounded sheep in the crowd. I've learned how to find those that are under the grips of some kind of a spirit that's holding them, whether it's a lion or a bear. Your servant will kill that thing. Your servant will strike it till it sticks his head up. Amen. You don't even have to, the, the lamb, the lamb doesn't even have to know you're doing it. So if I find out the brother here is struggling, I smite that spirit in prayer. I smite it until the spirit rises up and then I can kill the spirit and the brother gets delivered and don't even know what happened. Amen. So people in our churches are torn and been mauled by these things, but God loves his sheep. God loves them. Amen. Look at your name and say, God actually loves you. And God will send the anointed back to the sheepfold to learn how to be leaders and kings in his kingdom. Okay, so that's what we're called to do. You're called to strike it. Your anointing will help you kill it. And you're going to kill lions. Listen to me. You're going to be in the sheepfold. You're going to be here working with other people, helping other people. You're going to deliver them from lions and from bears before you ever kill a giant. Huh? You do not fight giants until you contend to the sheep. God's not going to send you to the giant first. He sends you to the bear. And I know you think it's a giant. It's just a lion. Amen. Amen, somebody. But the anointing, the Bible says, breaks off the yoke. The anointing's powerful. And so here's David. I want you to catch this picture. He is anointed to be king. He's out there. He keeps his spirit right. He doesn't try to elevate himself. He doesn't try to become preeminent and act like he's something he's not. He simply goes back to the sheepfold and protects those sheep. He knows that God knows his name and knows where he's at. God already sent the prophet. God already anointed him. He knows God's got his address and his phone number. He's not worried about it. He's worried about taking care of those sheep. He's worried about dealing with the spirits, learning how to deal with that. Because before he can be a king and deal with spirits over a nation, he needs to fill out how to be a, a, a giant slayer and a spirit slayer in a smaller level. Are you with me so far? The anointing breaks every yoke. All of a sudden, it releases a, super patch, a supernatural passion and a power and an enablement. The nation of Israel would have never had King David if it had been up to Jesse. The world would have never had King David if it had been up to this father. Hear me now. We would have suffered and been left alone. And the problem with that is Jesus comes out of that lineage. So if there was no David, there was no Jesus. And if there's no you, there's no Jesus in some of your family. If you become a watcher, your grandchildren are not going to have Jesus. If you become a Jesse and you function in rebellion because you're worried about some sin, that something's happened, you've screwed up your life, welcome to life. God is one that fixes screwed up lives. Jesus takes our lives wherever we're at. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And he repairs us, but when you try to do it on your own, you're going to fall right into a religious trap. You're going to fall right into it. And next thing you know, your kids are going to be in full-on rebellion, and you're going to be wondering what happened. And what happened is you stopped the lineage of Christ from moving in the family lineage. And witchcraft got in and began to work a rebellion. And that's what was happening here. Jesse was under the witchcraft of another man's wife. Amen. And he was struggling with it. And it's real. It's a real struggle. You're caught up with something that you shouldn't be caught up with. And sometimes you don't even know you're caught up with it. But something isn't right. And you can read the, the, the thing. Something's wrong. Wait, wait a minute. What, where, who is this shama? 
The little vato, where did he look at this? He looked like a ruka. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Huh? Are you listening to me? Here's what it says, 1 Samuel 17. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of who? A living God. He's not some idol. He's not some, some tradition. He's not some idea that man has. He's not some He's a living God. And that just like that lion spirit fell, and just like that bear spirit fell, this uncircumcised, big old, ugly, meathead sucker going down. Amen. And the Bible says, you know the story, hit that stone, knocked that dude down, took his own sword and cut his head off. Here's what it is, 1 Samuel 17, 54. David took the head of the Philistine, that's Goliath, and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Huh. So this guy's like 13 feet tall. I bet his head's about that big around. Big old meathead. Right? Come on, put it together. He didn't have a little, it wasn't men in black, he was a Goliath. <laughs> Some of you don't even know what that is, that's all right. He sticks that big old ugly head, I imagine in a burlap sack, but maybe he just carried it by its hair, I don't know. He lopped it off. 18 miles he carries it to Jerusalem. That's 18 miles from where he killed him. That's a long walk in 120 degrees weather, carrying a big old fat meat head. By the time he gets there, that sucker's stinking. It got maggots in it. Oh, yeah. I'm just trying to paint the picture. I'm trying to help you see it. Huh? And it says, and then it's 1 Samuel 17, 57. Then as David returned from the slaughter of this Philistine, Abner, that's one of the captains there, took him and brought him before Saul with a head of the Philistine in his hand. That's why we know he went to Jerusalem, 18 miles. So David eventually has this big nasty head. Saul ain't going to let him just leave it around the throne room. Saul makes him take it outside. And, the, and, and if you study it out just a little bit, you're going to find out that he took it up and he had to bury that head just outside the gates of Jerusalem. It's called the Dung Hill. It's where you took nasty things like that and you buried them out. There was a dump yard out there. It's called the Place of the Skull. Goliath's head was buried at Golgotha. Do you guys remember what Golgotha is? That's where Jesus died. He buried his head right there. Now let's go backwards 2,000 years. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden just for a moment. And it says this, God speaking. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He's going to bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's what he said to the devil. Now let's go the other direction 2,000 years. A sinless man by the name of Jesus Christ is being crucified on Skull Hill, Golgotha. He's nail pierced in his hands, nail pierced in his feet. He's bleeding and his blood is dropping off of him, running down him and dropping off his heel. And what's it falling on? The head of the giant. Your heel. Are you, you missed it. Did you catch on right there? 
You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to bruise your head. And that blood dropped right on that Goliath's head. And right there, because of the anointing, I'm here to tell you today, God will bruise Satan through your life. God will take your life. I don't care how ugly it's been. I don't care how rough it's been. I know there's been witchcraft. It makes you want to rebel. It makes you want to press against what leadership is doing. It makes you want to question everything that's happened in a church. That's a spirit. And it steals your joy. You're coming to church, but you have no joy. You look like a sourpuss Christian. You walk in here. Man, live, brother. Put a little smile on that face. It's taking like a thousand muscles to put that ugly face on. A smile takes 13 muscles. Just smile a little bit. Amen. We're the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ. And I believe that we are really, I, man, after, that, after the COVID deal and all that stuff, I believe we're the last generation. I really believe Jesus could come back at any time. And the last thing that's birthed when you have a normal birth, when a baby comes out, his head comes out first. Jesus is the head of the church. And the last thing out is his feet. And I believe you and I are those feet. I believe we are God's end time army. I believe we are now carrying the weight of the apostles and the prophets and Christ. All of that weight. We're, we're marching into battle. Amen. You and I are marching. And witchcraft is coming against our minds. It's trying to teach us all kind of cultural things. It's trying to tell us that we're a they or we're a we and we're a, we're a dog. And, and, you know, they, hey, they got this new kind of stuff out now. People, I feel like I'm, 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 you know, I'm a cripple. And so they're chopping their legs off. That's right. They're taking their eyeballs out. It's true. They're pulling their eyeballs out because they feel like they're blind. These people, I'm talking about, that's a spirit right there. Something is really wrong, and that's where we're living right now. But you and I are called to come in and bruise. Amen. We're called to come in and attack. We're called to come in and fight and enable and see God do something. Somebody shout amen. amen. Here's what it says, Acts 2.17. And it shall come to pass in the last day, said God. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. Hallelujah. Your young men are going to start to see vision. And me and Reuben are going to start to have dreams. <laughs> and my maid servants and on, on my men servants my maid servants I'm going to pour out my spirit and they're going to prophesy and they're going to do what? show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath God's going to use us to move the heavens and to move the earth God's going to touch our lives and the power of the Holy Spirit's going to come on us and we're going to be anointed but we're going to start right here in the sheepfold we're going to fight for each other. We're going to believe for each other. When we see our kids going into rebellion, we're not judging anybody. We're going to step into the line of iniquity with the power of the blood. We're going to say it stops right here. Bless God. We're going to believe God for that sister's boy. We're going to believe God for that sister's daughter. We're fighting for our uncle. I know he's a dirty Dan and slick Freddy and all that. I'm going going in after him. Somewhere we got to learn to fight. Church, God wants to anoint you. You're missing it. I know you feel like you're out in the back pasture somewhere. I know that you got all this weird stuff happening in your life. I know that all of a sudden you look different than everybody else. You got blue eyes and freckles. Amen. But the anointing can change everything. The anointing, let's put that right up there. The anointing can change everything. I know I got to scream. There it is. How many of you believe that? 
It'll change everything. And when we see those bears, when we see those lions, and we start to feel that generational curse, and we see that our family, were, they weren't worshipers, and they weren't builders. They were best watchers, and they usually watch the NFL. I'm not picking on the NFL, but I'm just saying they're home watching sports. They're not at church. They're not praising. And then they wonder why things have gone wrong in our nation. Somewhere you and I have got to stand up, come in out of the wilderness. We might stink. We might look ugly. We might be messed up. But we're the ones God says, I choose that. I choose that one. I don't care about all the religion. I don't care about all the astonishment. I don't care about all the hype. What I care, I don't care about all the big events that big folks are having. I'm, not, I'm looking for the man that can get down the trenches with the sheep. I'm looking for the man that knows how to fight lions and bears. I'm looking for the man I can train to fight a giant. I'm looking for the man that I can cause to lead a nation. Amen. When a church first starts, first 300 people, it's like a family. They expect the pastor to marry them and bury them and, and know all their kids' names and be at the birthday parties, all that stuff. But if you're ever going to grow past 300, you're going to have to learn how to get to, to the next level, and that's where you become a team. A team is somewhere between 300 and 600. You're a team. You start, you start to share things. You have disciples. You have, you have other people. You, you team. You work. Then after you get to 600 to about 900, you become an army. You got to learn how to have divisions. You got to learn how to do things and function in different levels. And that's where you, that's where you go. You, you, you get to that anointing. You get to that level. Because at that level, you've learned how to fight together with people to kill lions and bears. And now you're fighting in division. You're taking territories now. You're moving in a whole different realm. And then from about 900 to about 1,200, it's called a nation in the Bible. That's a nation. That's where you become a nation. And when you're a nation, you operate different. Amen. I was in Africa at a church there. It's one of the largest churches in the world. It's the size of, of, of three football fields, for reals. These big, huge wings. 5,000 people in the choir. Yeah, the platform is bigger than this whole building. It's unbelievable. And you're, it, it, I'm there. And I'm, gonna, I'm supposed to speak there. And, and, you know, this guy's way up in the balcony. I mean, it's like above those lights up there. You go, pray for me. Pray for me. I'm thinking, dude, I, no. That brother jumped off. Whoa. He jumped all the way down on the choir. And they put him right in front of me. I said, I'm praying for this brother right here. That little brother was crazy. Amen. Them Africans are psycho, man. Amen. Listen to me. I'm in this church, and I'm looking at this massive place. Everything's debt-free. They got jets. They got malls. They got gas stations. They own everything. This church is amazing. And I'm there, and here comes a pastor. They got like five black Suburbans and all these motorcycles up to the front. And I'm thinking, shoot, check this dude out. Who do you think he is? And the Holy Ghost came on me. He said, son, he's running a nation. You over there with your 300 little family? You've been privileged to be asked to come here, and you acting like this? You better get your game up. Listen to me. That man was running a nation. That's why he acted like he was running a nation. And so, Amen. So God teaches us, pastors, how we do that. There's an anointing that comes, and we go through levels, and we grow through levels, and, and God teaches us how to fight bears and, and lions, and he teaches us how to work with other people. So it's a lot easier to whoop a lion when you got somebody holding his legs down. Hey, man, I get edgy to jump on him and hold him while I beat him. Then it's a lot better when I get Manny to join in. Come on, Manny, hold his leg. He's trying to scratch somebody. Hey, Amen. It, it, you start to move as an army, and then you become a nation. And that's what happened to David out there in that sheep field. 
Out there with them sheep, he learned how to do that. He learned how to function as a king and never lost a battle against any Philistine army. Powerful. Amen. God helped him recover everything. It was amazing. He learned how to encourage himself when things were down. He learned how to pick it up. Amen. Because he was fighting with the spirit of witchcraft because his mama was messed up. And his daddy was messed up. It wasn't his fault. He just got birthed. Amen. God knows you before the foundations of the earth. God knew you. I just pray your mama and daddy had a good time. God looked down there and said, look at there, there's a little edgy down there. Oh, look over there. That's a little Sonya. We're going to put them together and see what comes out. This poor kid's got to live with all the stuff he did. We won't get, we'll, we'll stop right there. I ain't going no deeper. Some of you in this room tonight might feel like giving up. You don't even know why. You're just discouraged. You just feel like giving up. Some of you just feel like, why? Why are we doing that? I don't want to do this. And you just come with a rebellious attitude, a rebellious spirit. It's a witchcraft. It's working in our whole nation right now. Amen. Somewhere we got to rise up as a people and say no more. Somewhere we got to fight. We got to believe God. I want you to bow your heads and I'm going to ask the musicians to come and help me up, uh, help out a little bit with some worship here. Maybe tonight you, you're about to give up. You're about to give up. It's been rough, man. It, it, ain't, it isn't going the way you thought it would go. You never dreamed that you'd get an anointing, that the Holy Spirit would come on you, and they'd lay hands on your head, and they, they man, I mean, you're ready to go, and God sends you out to the pasture. You're thinking, what's happening here? What's wrong with me? Nothing. You're going to learn how to fight lions and bears. You're going to learn how to deal with giants, because one day you're going to be a king. A real king. You're going to lead. You're going to change things. You're going to change the culture that you're a part of. You're going to bring prosperity and things into life that are not there today. In fact, you're going to bring the presence of Jesus in who breaks, the, that breaks all the powers of sin, of transgressions, of iniquity. And without you, he doesn't get birthed. Amen. You don't feel qualified, but you are. You don't feel that you're able, but you are. You're wounded. When you're wounded, all you can think about is the pain of that wound. Generational wounds. Some of you got some real, real father wounds. You really got a father wound. Listen, we're not mad at your dad. We're not mad at you. It's real. And somewhere, you're going to have to fight against that thing that steals your joy. It steals your victory. It doesn't take much and you're down. Be honest with yourself. It just doesn't take much, and you go down. So you put on a fake face, and you come in and watch everybody, and you can't get into it. That's a spirit. It gets hold of churches. It makes every song service drudgery. It makes every offering just a, oh, bummer, here we go again. Something happens to you. It's a spiritual thing. But tonight, I believe God wants to break every one of those yokes. His anointing breaks the yoke. It changes things. It changes everything. And it'll put a joy in you when everybody else is falling apart. It'll make a victory come when you just are shocked that a victory could come in that setting. God uses crises. He uses it. It's a crisis, ladies, that happens in your belly 
when you're pregnant. Eventually, that baby gets big enough, it goes into crisis. And it says, I've got to get out of here. And it's the crisis that causes that birth to come. And God's got some of you in a crisis because he's birthing something in your life. He's birthing it. The anointing is on you. You don't, I'm not talking about a feeling. I'm talking about a, a grace of God. It's a gift of God. It's come on you. It's on you. Now you have to learn how to use that and function in that and, and understand it so that you don't end up violating it and using your gift, misusing your authority in the kingdom and hurting people because your own father wound causes you to act like your daddy you, because it's a generational thing. So you yell at your wife because that's, that's, what, that's what you learn to do. You yell at your kids because you're frustrated. You don't know what to do with them no more, so you start yelling. And that kid learns that. And that kid feels that rebellion. He feels it. He doesn't understand it, but there he is struggling. I'm talking right to some of you today. You're adults, 50, 60 years old or older or younger, doesn't matter. And that thing's still alive in you. It's like a snake, man. It's snakish. It slithers inside of you. It doesn't take a whole lot to bring it out. Listen, that's the idea. The anointing will break the yoke. That snake or that bear, or that lion will stick its head up. Your job is to smite it. Make it let go of you or God's people, whichever it might be, your children, whatever it is. Make it let go. Once it lets go, kill it. Come in for the death flow. Come in after it. Do not let it get away. Don't let it hunt again. Fight it. If it slips away and it comes back again, go for it again until you kill it. Usually if it slips away, it's a bear. It hibernates, it comes back. That could be 10 years, five years, doesn't matter. It comes back. We've, we've watched home directors come in. And I'm not putting any whammy on anybody here. I, no word curses here. But we've seen men come in, and after doing so well and helping so many people, all of a sudden they slip back into it. That's a bear. We don't need to beat that man up. We need to fight that bear. We need to beat that thing off. That's a good brother. He's under the spirit. There's a spirit of witchcraft working on him. I want to tell you, you can get past all that witchy stuff. It cannot hinder you if you let the anointing touch your life. Now, Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. For your word tonight, I thank you that you don't hide the ugliness, but you let us see it for what it is so that we can discover our own selves and, and, and we know, Lord, that we can't do this without your help. It's not our greatness. It's you, Jesus.